0: Ladies and gentlemen, this is Book Music. I am Tosh.
1: And I'm Kimley.
0: And each episode of Book Music, we focus on one specific book about music. It can be music history, it could be a memoir by a musician or a music figure or a composer. It could even be a fictional character who may be a composer or a musician. Long as it deals with music in some form or some way. And today. We're going to focus on a specific book called Common Tones Selected Interviews with Artists and Musicians, 1995 through 2020, by Alan Licht. And we have Alan Licht as our guest today, Kimley.
1: I know, I'm very excited.
0: Welcome, Alan.
2: Hi, thank you.
0: Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Yes. Thank God. Funnily enough, my
2: father was the only one in his family to pronounce it that way. Everybody okay. else pronounced it light.
3: And oh, My wow. father
2: couldn't figure out like how, I mean, even though it means light in uh-huh. German and other uh, European languages, he couldn't he just could never figure out that pronunciation. So usually I hear litched or I hear, you know, sometimes people say uh-huh. light or they kind of see it as a G instead of a C. On
0: well, my point of view, what a close call. <laughs> and kind of, very rarely that I get a pronunciation correct.
2: so in other words there's actually no correct pronunciation of it because the rest of the family pronounces it light, so oh. there's no there's no even consensus within the family about how to pronounce <laughs> it. But the other thing is the other thing is that when I went to I, about ten years ago I went to Ellis Island because it's the hundredth anniversary of my maternal grandmother's immigration to United States. And uh, we were there and we are you know, they have this whole kind of presentation and like a history of it's kind of an audiovisual thing. And, um, they kind of restaged, uh, an immigrant coming, you know, to the immigration site and they ask him what his name is. And he, he doesn't know, or he, he doesn't know enough English to understand what they're saying. And they yes. say, okay, so we're going to call you licked. L-I-C-H-T. And apparently that was kind of like a, a go-to name for people who uh, immigrated here and either didn't speak enough English or or didn't know their name because sometimes I think people came from very impoverished areas oh. where they didn't keep yeah, any yeah. records at all, you know, or they would just know their first name and they wouldn't be like, you know, uh, Joe of, you know, whatever the, the town was or the mm-hmm. village they were from. Uh-huh. Um you know, that was like a standby name. So I don't I don't think that was the case uh, with my family because I, I don't have anything to suggest that that's that they came. My father's parents came here not knowing enough English or knowing enough uh, about their own um, background to 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 say that. But um, mm-hmm. that that was a, a weird <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting uh, yeah. uh, story to find out about yeah, your family name. <laughs> yeah,
2: and it's, it's you know, it's not that common a name comparatively. Right. Is
0: so that the common situation where people's names become Englishized or Americanized when they when they came to the Yeah, country. that's what I right. think. I think I think yeah. it's
2: it been something else and it got shortened to licked or it got shortened mm-hmm. or just got kind mm-hmm. of Americanized to them. It's I a mean, good Alan, name. I mean, you know, Alan is, uh, you know, I'm named for my paternal grandfather, but his name was Adolf. And so mm. post-war, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't such a hip name to have. <laughs> uh, they kind of opted for Alan.
1: Uh, that's a good decision, I think.
2: Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm Alan Arthur. My younger brother is Stuart Spencer. And I don't really know what the English thing is because there's no English blood in the family. Oh. But I think that's just sort of a...
1: It's just like the sound. Yeah, it's just, again, it's sort of an The American, alliteration.
2: Both of yeah. <laughs> you. Know, it's like my parents were from New Jersey and Massachusetts, respectively. So that was New England, essentially.
1: So I think it's kind of fun. We're turning the tables on you with this interview. Because I said the book is all about you interviewing other people. yeah, I we mean, are interviewing you. <laughs> I mean, I
2: guess, funnily enough, you know, I've sort of been interviewed by other people just about as long as I've interviewed people for uh, or other musicians. I think, you know, one of the first ones I did, which is not in the book, but it was with, I was doing this article about Lamont Young that got published in First exposure, which was a fanzine back Mm -hmm. then. And so I interviewed Lamont and Marion, his wife, and I interviewed John Hassel and I interviewed Terry Riley and a couple of other people for that. And so those are probably the first like real interviews that I did. Um, But when I was in, you know, my first kind of band was Love Child and, um, you know, people would interview us for that band. And that was only just a a couple of years after that. So I've sort of been an interviewee as well as an interviewer, Mm. you know, for 30 years.
0: We should point out that Alan is a composer and musician. As well as a uh, right. as a writer and a journalist. In case the people out there didn't, doesn't know, our topics are quite wide and and far sometimes. So, Alan Lick is a musician and composer. <laughs> right. but I just want to make that clear to everyone. Right.
2: Well, hence right. the common tones title. It's that that's the the thing I have in common with most of the people in the book is that we're both uh, musicians, or I and in, in a couple of cases, it's multiple people, but. Uh, we're either we're both musicians, or at least we're both very interested in music.
1: Okay, that's interesting because I I sort of took the title more as there were common tones among all of the interviewees. Yeah, well, that's um, true. That's
2: true as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought it was really interesting that there were so many connections between everyone, and I was wondering. When you were putting the book together, were you thinking in terms in those terms, or did it come to you after you had put the collection together and you went, Oh wow, you know, there's definitely links between all of these people.
3: Yeah,
2: I mean it, it occurred to me somewhat. Um we, we actually put the interviews in pretty much chronological order. Really? And uh with a few exceptions. And it's it is sort of amazing like how they kind of bounce off each other that way, where it's sort of like it's almost it's almost like uh becomes like a Venn diagram where or or some other kind of linked linked thing where it, it, there's like something in one interview that then kind of links to the next one even though it was just a kind of a coincidence that that those interviews happened in 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 that kind of chronology and as to when they happened and then when i was writing the introductions to the interviews for the book i would start to remember some of the different Connections like when I talked about—I um, think I was talking about how um, something about Bleecker Street with um, Greg Tate and how I had bought the Miles Davis album *Pangea* mm-hmm. on uh, this at this record store on Bleecker Street when I was a teenager, and mm-hmm. then it was something else—I forget what it is. Later in the book, I talk about um, Bleecker Street also, and it was something that was kind of related back to that. It was something about. Baker Street is a big part of your life. Oh, I know it is. It <laughs> was sort of well. It was that I think it was in the interview with Kelly Reichert. and mm-hmm. Kelly and I both worked at this film distributor called, it's now called Kino Lorber, and back then it was called Kino International. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah,
3: and yeah, uh, one yeah. of
2: the guys I worked with there was named Lawrence, and he worked part time. You would work part time at Kino, and then part time at that same record store that I mm-hmm. bought the the Miles Davis Pangeo.
1: Oh, that's record funny. At.
2: Uh, So some of this is just kind of like New York, you know, New York is a small town after all Mm -hmm. (laughs) kind of things. But then it's also just shows like how zeroed in I was on all the things that I'm, that I'm interested in.
1: Right. I was joking with Tosh that uh, you could have also called this six degrees of Alan Lick. (laughs) 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 I mean, how important is that artistic community to you?
2: Well, it's very important. You know, when, when I was a teenager and I bought the, that Velvet Underground book, uh, Uptight, which was by mm. Gerard Malanga and Victor Bonner. Mm. Uh-huh. you know, you, I went to the back and there was like, you know, these like little mini bios of all the people, cause it's a oral history. And there's like these mini bios of all the people who are in it. It was like, so-and-so does this, is that they live in New York. So-and-so does that blah, 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 they live in New York. It was uh-huh. like every single person <laughs> right. in New York. And I was just like, well, there's just no question. It's like, that's, that's where I've got to be.
1: Right, it's time to hop over the river. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I did. Jersey, I, grew in, yeah, I grew up in, yeah, I grew
2: up in not that far out from from here. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's right. Uh, it's Milburn, New Jersey, which is about thirty minutes due west. So I was coming into town, but it was you could really go anywhere. But but that it really just seemed like this was you know to to really kind of pursue what I wanted to pursue. This was you know, whether it was and not that I was even all that focused on what area I was really going to pursue, but. No matter what it was, this was seemed to be the, the place to do it. Whether it was experimental music or underground rock or experimental film or art or you know whatever it was.
0: How were you? Uh, how were you exposed to experimental music world or or the film world?
2: Um, everything was really just a, from reading about it in either magazines or books for the most mm-hmm. part. You know, one of one of the things about this book is I'm really a product of the late 70s and the kind of last vestiges of the counterculture media like Rolling Stone right. magazine and Cream and all this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And, you know, Rolling Stone would have um, these long interviews,
1: uh, yes.
2: often with musicians, but not always. You know, there was a guy who wrote for them, and I think was one of the editors named Jonathan Cott. And Love him. Jonathan- yeah right so like Mm -hmm. jonathan would do you know he interviewed mick jagger and pete townsend and bob Mm -hmm. dylan he did amazing interviews with bob dylan right around when ronaldo and clara came out Uh um and but he also did like jean-luc Godard. he did um did a whole book of interviews with stockhausen
3: he did a whole book of interviews again
2: glenn gould exactly Uh so that to me was sort of like a model for like someone who would kind of interview all these different people. But, you know, what Rolling Stone and a lot of the counterculture was saying is like, if you like this, you might, you know, it's like nowadays you have these algorithms that are like, well, if you like Mick Jagger, you might also like Steven Tyler or something. But (laughs) Uh
3: back then it was
2: like, if you like Mick Jagger, you might also like Philip K. Dick and you might also like, Mm -hmm. you know, Ravi Shankar or you might also, Mm -hmm. you know, it was like, it was this much wider ranging um, kind of field that, that uh, the counterculture kind of represented. Uh, and that's something I really like grew up uh, exposed to and, and that really had a real effect on me.
0: Jonathan Cott was really amazing because he spoke so intelligently to pop music figures like you know Mick Jagger and and uh, John Lennon. Did you do John Lennon? Well, yeah. in my mind, he did. He did, he he did like, the
2: last interview with John Lennon. Oh, ah,
0: like, okay. You know,
2: it was like literally the last interview he ever gave.
0: And these artists really respond to Jonathan Cott's, um sensibility and his aesthetic, and, and and so forth.
2: Yeah, because and he was a very he was like a really uh, learned kind of guy. You know, in that one of those interviews with Bob Dylan, he recites this whole like, I think it's like a Hasidic folk story to him, and and you know, Dylan is like, "Wow, that's an amazing story." You know, he's just like he's mm-hmm. listening with rapt attention. It's like you know, I mean, how many interviewers? I mean, when you see those interviews with Bob Dylan in the sixties and it's just these Yahoo's who are like, yeah. you know, it's like these kind of old school newspaper men, they don't really understand the younger generation. They're kind of just uh-huh. asking him anything they would ask as like any like entertainer. And it's like, he's kind of like, he's like kind of dancing circles around them because, you know, they're just so, um, he's so kind of beyond what, what that is. Um, and with Jonathan Codd, it's like, you know, he can actually have like a conversation. With
0: mm-hmm. And you too, as well. You, you know, I didn't think about this, but to, to, I, you know, John Collins was like one of my favorite um, interview people. I mean, if he interviewed anybody, even somebody I don't know, I would pick up that, that yeah. magazine. Up. But you too have that that skill, that knack of um, talking to really interesting people and really bringing out interesting aspects of their of their character or their or their work or their art. That takes an incredible amount of talent, I think. Oh, thank you. And you you have that it quality.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was impressed with the Lou Reed interview. I mean, that's one of the best interviews I've read with him. And we actually started this podcast with an entire book of Lou Reed interviews. So we've read quite a few. And, um, you know, everybody knows that he is a cantankerous, difficult interview. Um, But you really seem to get the better of him. And you did mention in the intro that you were a little nervous beforehand. At what point did you kind of finally relax and realize, okay, this is going okay. He's, you know, we're having a, an actual conversation.
2: <laughs> uh, well, it was. <laughs> I mean, I, I was still pretty nervous all the way through. But you know, when I dropped Ulrich Krieger's name as being someone that we had in common, who was he played with me and Lee Ronaldo in Text of Light, which is this is group we had that would kind of improvise music alongside screenings of experimental films. And he's the one who transcribed metal machine music for Uh, uh a contemporary Mm -hmm. ensemble called Zeitkratzer. Uh, and so Lou was like really impressed by that transcription as he kind of elaborates on in the interview. Mm -hmm. So I mentioned that. And then I also mentioned that I owned a copy of metal machine music in quad like the quad <laughs> pressing of it. And he was just like, he was like, you actually have that? That's, you know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, a lot of his interviewers probably never owned metal machine music to begin with, but the fact right. that he had such an obscure pressing of it, uh, I think was was like, kind of knocked him for a loop. And then when I mentioned Melody Laughter, which is uh-huh. this, you know, which is this name given to, it's like a long jam that the Velda Underground did as part of the Plastic in Exploding Inevitable, or Exploding mm-hmm. Plastic Inevitable. And it was only on bootlegs until it came out on the box set of the Bell Underground stuff. Mm-hmm. And the thing to this day I don't know, and it's in the interview, is like he starts reciting these lyrics to it. And I've only heard it as an instrumental. I did. I had no other uh, mm-hmm. documentation of it having lyrics other than what he mm-hmm. kind of like said to me that day. And it's something I should, I mean, I know a a bunch of kind of Belvin Underground scholars, and I should really ask them, like, if they've come across any other evidence of this piece having lyrics to it. um, Intrigue. Yeah. But that was another (laughs) thing. There's, like, again, it's something that almost nobody, I think, would have mentioned to him.
1: And the other people who
2: were interviewing that day, even, like, when I would, would, like, look at some of the other articles that came out. Uh, At the same time, it's like, you know, they were asking him, like, you know, do you still take drugs? Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, why do you, you think know? they were
1: doing that? I mean, yeah, at that I point, mean, people knew what he was about, yeah. I mean, you know. But, yeah, but that's
2: why he hated interviews. And yeah. he's also someone who, I'm sure he never, like, bought a record based on an interview in a magazine with mm-hmm. the, the art. Like, you know, you know, he's pre all of that. You know, he was buying doo-wop singles and, and all this stuff. You know, he's buying... When he and he was i think kind of a record collector in his own right although people probably don't suspect it but mm-hmm. um
1: can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be interested in experimental music and film
2: i mean when i was a kid what i was mostly interested in was visual art i was like you know the class artist i was interested in art history and and actually you know as someone who's like kind of a being someone who's like a kind of a historian and a practitioner at the same time which you could certainly say about me as a musician is something you could also have said about me, Mm -hmm. you know, back then when, when I was kind of copying the old masters, but then also um, trying to learn as much as I could about them from, from books, from art books. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, and I kind of, I was, I liked music, but mostly classical music, which is really all my parents had
0: in the house.
2: And I didn't, I wasn't so into what I, was exposed to his rock music, which of course is probably the same kind of thing I don't like now, which would be, you know, whatever was on the radio or, you know, what was on like Saturday morning children's television and things Mm -hmm. like that. Um, but then when I was ten years old, all of a sudden I decided I did like it. And after a couple of false starts with Sean Cassidy and the Saturday Night Fever (laughs) track, I latched on to uh the some of the solo Beatles and then the Beatles and then Uh fm radio and so on and so forth so then it was became like learning about rock history and i went through the usual beatles who stones led zeppelin etc and also punk rock because uh one of my cousins had given me that book 1988 which was by caroline coon it was a kind of a collection of her Uh, uh enemy articles i guess Uh about punk as it was happening and lots of pictures and it was a little too much for me to absorb at age nine. Mm -hmm. But then a couple of years later, the clash were on the radio. And then I was like, kind of remember them from that book. And I pulled it out and kind of went from there. But to, to when I discovered the velvet underground, which again is through a book like the Rolling Stone record guide, I I noticed it in there. And then cream magazine did an article about them kind of a retrospective article around 1980. Um, And I finally bought the first album sometime after that. And that sort of like then kind of led it back to being interested in visual art because it was an Andy Warhol kind of production.
3: Uh So
2: the first Velvet Underground record then became uh, this sort of like gateway kind of back into contemporary art, but then also to, as it turned out, minimalism. Uh-huh. because of just the John Cale connection with Lamont Young. And sort of like a few years later, I discovered Steve Reich and Philip Klass uh-huh. and, then everybody, and Terry Riley. And then everyone was always saying, well, Lamont Young was like kind of the granddaddy of all them. And I was like, oh, right, that's the guy that John Cale played with. Right. And then free jazz, because then it turned out that all the crazy guitar playing that Lou Reed is doing there is sort of inspired by free jazz, like Cecil Taylor and Ornette Coleman. Uh, And then punk rock, because everyone said they were kind of the the progenitors of punk rock and so on and so forth. Um, So it turned out to be this kind of like gateway to all these other things and not just a gateway to Lou Reed's solo albums or Nico's solo albums or
3: John Cale's
2: solo albums. And you can say that actually about Led Zeppelin, too, where like if you if you really kind of follow up on some of the Led Zeppelin stuff that can lead you to British folk music. Can lead mm-hmm. you to psychedelic music, can lead you to um, uh, electric blues. You know, it's like it's it's and and then Moroccan
3: mm-hmm.
2: music actually, and mm-hmm. and a lot of other kind of like world musics or ethnic music. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jimmy Page even said that the first Led Zeppelin record was supposed to be like freeform radio, which kind of again goes back to the counterculture and sound uh-huh. like you know you can play Indian music next to uh, British folk music next to moby grape and love mm-hmm. and uh you know whoever and next to you know all these kind of seemingly dis- disparate things and can actually kind of make sense if you're on drugs
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or,
2: <laughs> or even if you're not on drugs and you're just you know you're kind of attuned to it
0: it's very interesting how like certain bands or artists can lead you to other artists or, ban- or literature or art you know um like I think of the Beatles, I think of sometimes like Richard Hamilton and Peter Blake because Blake, yeah, did the, you know, work on the Pepper cover, and Richard Hamilton did the White Album. But even like people like Morrissey or the Smiths, you know, he actually sort of introduced me to a lot of like British writers and film culture people that I was not totally aware of. Um, in a way, he, he introduced me to Billy Fury, which who I'm a, sort of a fan of right now. And, oh wow! Um, and you know, I'd never, i never—I mean, I heard his name, but I didn't know who Billy Fury is. But just because at the time he sort of presented these people on their, on the, you know, on the record covers and stuff like that. Yeah, um, and, I, I and the Underground is exactly the same way. Cause they, as you mentioned, were sort of like a foundation of knowledge of sort of the avant-garde, um, music and film world. And it, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, a, great gateway to go through.
2: Yeah. And also, you know, all those stills in the first Velvet Underground record from the exploding plastic and everything sort of like multi- you know, sort of like multimedia thing, you know, the, the whole reason I even started playing guitar and, and, and buying records was, was actually because of this picture I saw of the gatefold sleeve of Wings Over America. And it's actually <laughs> a painting of Wings on stage for this, uh-huh. like this amazing light show. And I, I, I was really, I I was, to me, that was like you could actually be in the painting. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you learned how to play guitar, you could be in the painting and be <laughs> in the light show. Right. And it wasn't like, you know, Rembrandt was my favorite artist, but you can't be in the night watch. No. You know, you're not going to grow <laughs> up and <laughs> become like the laughing cavalier of France <laughs> Hall. But this was something you could actually grow up and be, you know, in the, the painting, right, the, you know, right. it's this colorful kind of like,
0: you can, be, you can become a member of Wings,
2: perhaps. <laughs> well. You never know. I did play with Yoko, so I was,
0: <laughs> again, oh, six, wow. degrees, six degrees. Yeah, well, separation. that's pretty
1: amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting yeah. that so many of the people that you're interviewing are multidisciplinary, like yourself, mm-hmm. working in music and writing and film and the visual arts and often combining them. Um, what is it about this creative perspective that you find so interesting?
2: yeah I mean, that's i I mean so I suppose that's why I kind of relate to them, and I wanted to um, engage them in conversation just to sort of like compare notes or to sort of just help um, maybe expose them to a different audience depending on who I was writing the article for. Um you know, when you do that, and I talk about this a lot with Greg Tate in that first mm-hmm. in that opening interview in the book. you know, it's I mean, I don't know what it's like in other places, but at least here people kind of look at it a little suspect, you know, it's like, you know, it's like it's always the whole thing of being a Jack Jack of all trades master. of Um, so, and you know, invariably some people know me better for the writing or they spend more time reading my stuff than they do listening to records I've been on. And that's just the way it goes. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, especially like Michael Snow is sort of, I put Michael Snow right after Greg in the beginning because Michael in a way is sort of like the one guy who's done all these, uh, worked in all these medium incredibly uh, effectively and, and been very successful in all of them. You know, yeah. if he's sort of, if you, you could know him as an experimental filmmaker and not even necessarily know that he was a visual artist, just because he's, he's actually considered one of, you know, Wavelength, it's considered a, a classic of, you know, the first wave of, at least American experimental film. And I know, at least in Canada, you know, he's, he's very highly regarded as a visual artist. Probably, his visual art probably isn't as well-known here, maybe as his um, uh, filmmaking, but.
0: Um, yeah. I heard of both uh, Michael and Tony Conrad through their films first. So for a long time, it was their films that, you know, I would think, oh, filmmaker, filmmaker. But now, you know, like, I mean, it's like you know, for five years now, I think of them as, as uh, composers or music people.
2: Yeah, Tony, for me, the same. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mean, the first time I encountered Tony was actually, in a, again, as Velvet Underground fanzine, mm-hmm. where they did this thing called the Angus MacLeese uh-huh, story. Uh-huh. And they interviewed a few different people. And Tony was one of the people. Uh, and then I guess he was in the the Uptight book also, as uh-huh. I was talking about before. So I knew about him as this, but, you know, and then I guess I also read about him being uh, the guy who made a record called Outside the Dream Syndicate, and that's yes. where the band, the Dream Syndicate, took the, the rock mm-hmm. band or James mm-hmm. their name from. So uh, I guess I knew that he had some involvement with music, but it seemed like, but, you know, these, these were such kind of obscure references and you couldn't find the record. Right. I didn't know anybody had it. So yeah. when I found the flicker, then it was like, oh, it's the same guy. And I guess he was really just a filmmaker. And then, you know, maybe he had this, did some music early on. it's like, it was only later that um, I, I really kind of got to hear his record and and, um, and the other, and he really right. kind of started doing music. Uh, in earnest again in you know the late 80s and you know I did an interview with him that Blank Forms published in one of their you know because they do a journal which is I don't know if it's quarterly or yearly or what it what it is but I had done this interview with Tony in the late 80s um, when he first started doing early minimalism live and um, it was interesting because he's he says at one point you know I haven't traveled that music meaning he hadn't toured Right. As a, mm. as a musician. And then he went on to actually tour quite a bit in the, in the nineties and, and, you know, the the two thousands also. And he's someone who, you know, was, had kind of been teaching film kind of based on the connections he made in the experimental film world. Uh, and then he kind of, in towards the end of his life, he kind of resumed music making and he also kind of got, uh attention from art galleries and started exhibiting in galleries and it's sort of,
0: and Her- and Henry Flint, who you also interview yeah. in the book is sort of similar, you know, the sort of similar, I don't want to use the word career. because That sounds too uh, map like but but definitely, you know, they definitely do music and visuals together or separately, but they never, they, you know, they go back and forth on it on, on different mediums.
2: Yeah. I think Henry has a, a little more complicated relationship t- <laughs> to all that. I think Tony was probably someone who was, a little more exuberant in uh embracing this stuff i think henry kind of like there's like a little there's there's i think he tends to um be be almost uh uh too philosophical uh
3: huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know
2: he's sort of like, you know he's philosophy i think is one of his um uh you know mediums actually and uh-huh. uh I think that's sometimes he's sort of like putting the cart before the horse in a way.
0: One thing comes through, like all the interviewees, is their personality and their charm, or or even their difficult personalities. It it, it, yeah. it it comes out in a very positive light, um, and I think that's a lot of it, just because of your skills as the interviewer. You know, you you um, you know how to bring out the best of people.
2: Well, most of them are nice
3: <laughs> anyway.
2: I mean there weren't too many you know, there weren't too many of them where I I knew I would be kind of like you know, kind of like trying to dodge the landmines. Maybe maybe Glenn Branco, who I had only met maybe once or twice really briefly before I did that interview. I, I would have been a little wary of just you know, just from hearing stories about him, but there again, you know, it's like if you really do your homework and you sort of approach these people with, you know, being serious and mm-hmm. being respectful, then, you know, they're kind of say, Hey, wait a minute. This isn't like every other joker that right. sits down for an interview. Right. It's, this guy's really knows what he's talking about. And, you know, and, and, and it'll kind of, I think it'll kind of inspire them to sort of tell you something that they wouldn't tell to somebody else. Cause a lot mm. of times, People really have, especially if you're interviewing them around a specific current project or release or something, they pretty much have, you know, thought about what they're going to tell to a journalist
0: about
2: this new thing. And that's, and there's a couple of examples of that. I won't name names, but Mm -hmm. there there are a couple of other people in there where when I went and saw other press they were doing around the same time, time after it came out, they had said virtually the same thing. To another journalist, as they had said yeah. to me about it. But I had also asked them about stuff that the other person hadn't asked them about. So that's sort of what.
0: So, so for each subject that. matter, you how much time do you spend? Like, you choose your subject matter, I presume, that you're going to interview. Right? I mean, did some editor ever say, choose well, interview? No, some, actually,
2: so? I mean, a lot of these were were like the wire, especially mm-hmm. would say, hey, can you inter-, Like, Suicide was the wire saying, mm-hmm. hey, can you interview? Uh, suicide Ira and Georgia was uh, Purple Magazine's, hey, can you interview them about Hoboken? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Henry Flint was The Wire asking, too. Um, Tom Verlaine was, you know, Thrill Jockey asking, mm-hmm. so was The Sea and Cake, mm-hmm. actually.
1: Okay, so a um, lot of them were assigned.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean. But I'm actually, sure they I would, came say, to I would say you the,
1: knowing I, that. I mean, the majority
2: of them, actually, now I'm kind of like looking at the whole list.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: So how do you prepare for this st- the stay upon your subject matter? I mean do you do do you spend a great deal of time going through their discography or their writings or
2: well the first interviews? thing I do is try to read every other interview with them so uh-huh. you're not asking the same questions that somebody else has asked them mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know to some extent I try to you know to to absorb as much of um, their their output as I can sometimes it's so much stuff that you know you can't really mm-hmm. do it and sometimes But if i have like a specific angle like you know with um ken jacobs for example the filmmaker like the mm-hmm. whole angle there would be like what what role sound played or music played mm-hmm. in his films and he's he's made like you know dozens of films but i just concentrated on the ones that had a, a soundtrack or like someone did music for or um Yeah, so I went to EAI, which is Electronic Arts Intermix in New York. And I, you know, I spent two or three hours just watching a bunch of videos. I mean, most of them are 20 minutes long or 30 minutes long. So I was able to watch a bunch of them. And um, so that way I could say like, well, in this one, you did this and that, and then just try to get them to talk about that. Because again, it was for the wire, which is a music magazine. Yeah. So you have to do it. You have to kind of tailor it. So it's, uh, about something that you wouldn't talk to them about for a film magazine, right? Or or an art magazine.
0: So I should tell the listeners that your book is definitely music related. But it's interviews with you know like fil- you know filmmakers, writers, but but music or sound is the one common thing with all of these people you interview, right. right? Right.
2: And sometimes you wouldn't suspect it either, or you kind of or it's something like Vito Acconci. Like sound plays such an important role. Uh huh in his videos and a lot of them are like him actually like and he's done lots of sound pieces kind of standalone sound pieces there's things where he's kind of almost being a dj and like installations where he's being a dj and like playing all these uh recordings of all these songs and so that was a really rewarding interview because i could talk to him about like what role music really played in his life and it turned out to be a very significant role and he's even talking about how even his performance pieces whether the was component or not were really informed by these kind of long uh discursive singer-songwriter uh mm-hmm. people of the period like van morrison and neil young like I, I think he even talked about the neil young song last trip to tulsa it's just yes. kind of like long um kind of involved song with a lot of verses that's just very stark it's just him playing it on guitar and singing it himself, which is, you know, he doesn't actually do that much on his solo
3: mm-hmm.
2: records, but that was on his first solo record. And it was sort of something I think that really made an impression
0: on him. What It's so strange you brought that up because I heard that song for the first time in my life yesterday. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I was playing. I was just curious about that album, the first album. And um, yeah. I'm not even a real Neil Young fan. I was just... Out of curiosity, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, funny how that works.
3: Yeah. <laughs> and the other person
0: was kind of was, was I thought was a great interview in the book is uh, Rudy Wurlfler, who is a novelist uh, um, and a screenwriter. He wrote Tulane Blacktop.
3: Back in yeah. the title,
0: yeah. So, and he even he, even he has a strong music connotation or.
3: Well,
2: his family is Wurlitzer. I mean, yes. the
3: Wurlitzer, Bob, <laughs>
2: and the you know, the, one of the mind blowing things about that interview for me was when I didn't know that much about his background, but he talks about being this guy who came from a musical family and then kind of ran away to work on an oil rig. Uh-huh. And if you know the movie five easy pieces, yes, yes, that's Jack Nicholson's character. Yeah, And I mentioned that I was like, you know, when you were saying this, it reminded me of that film. And he was like, Oh yeah, I, Carol Eastman who's the, the screenwriter of that film and I were friends we used to you know we used to talk so I'm I'm pretty much convinced that that character is based on him to to some degree anyway
0: That's was funny my mother went to high school as Carol Eastman oh uh, really yes and my mom claims nothing you know one is wrong or right but apparently her brother was a musician uh, a pianist who gave it up to work you know, the oil rigs or whatever. Oh really? Yeah. Wow, I, think, how funny. I think I think it's probably a combination. maybe it's a combination of Yeah, it's probably well it's probably if my right. if my mother is yeah. correct in her, you know.
2: She so, yeah, stuff. that that would yeah, I'm sure she should, mm-hmm. that she is. But um yeah, I mean that's a really funny coincidence.
0: Tony coincidence is here. Strange. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. Now I'm a huge Tom Verlaine fan. I love the Tom Verlaine interview, and uh, I love yes. the intro how you called him a guitar hero for people who are embarrassed to have guitar heroes not cracking <laughs> up because I'm like, yeah. that's me. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, why do you think this is the case with him?
2: Uh, well, he, you know, I think what what I also I say in the introduction is like television was like kind of they're kind of a definitively alternative band, because it's a lot of, they kind of build on a lot of stuff from the 60s without becoming like prog rock or, you know, it was sort of like, it's kind of like making garage rock more sophisticated without making it pretentious or overblown or kind of a hybrid with classical music or jazz or, or you know, or at least not jazz in an overt way. Um, or it was like in the next step from psychedelic music that, you know, was not a misstep, <laughs>
3: uh-huh. mm-hmm. and also
2: just the uh, kind of like um, so like compared to um, you know the guitar heroes of the '60s, like you know Clapton, Beck, and Page. It was also sort of like if those guys had been more exposed to John Coltrane and less uh-huh. to like the electric blues players, uh-huh. especially mm-hmm. Clapton, who kind of by his own admission is you know heavily indebted to. Buddy Guy and Albert King and, mm-hmm. and people like right. that, which, which I think was, uh, you know, uh, an influence on Richard Lloyd in television and, and mm-hmm. I think not very much for Tom. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he was kind of like the alternative guitar hero. And then you have these other the guys who kind of listened to him and then took it even further away from that, like the edge, even in U2, uh-huh. um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, becomes this other kind of like alternative guitar hero. It's like you're, they're kind of doing things that don't have to do with uh certainly not with blues scales, but, but even with scales to begin with. And that's not necessarily true of Tom because he's still, he's still playing, you know, he's not really playing totally avant-garde guitar or anything like that, or right. he's not really using effects to sort of, mm-hmm. in the way that the edge does to sort of kind of like, these soundscapey type things but um
0: Tom Verlaine is a total mystery to me I can't you know <laughs> I, I I mentioned this in other shows and with Kimley but I can never get a clear picture of who he is either through the media or through other people who know him or talk about him the only book that I read that I sort of get an idea of who he is, is is um maybe a little bit of the Richard Hell's um memoir oh yeah and then Duncan Hannah, uh book about you know the '70s that he wrote about the '70s, and but normally he's sort of a, a, a phantom figure to me. Is that is that this me, <laughs> <laughs> or is or, that or is there or is he more, or is he more, um, he more strong presence in, in people's lives?
2: He's a tall guy. Oh, right. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, okay, I good. think if you, yeah. ever, if you ever came if you ever saw him face to face or went to a concert, I think you uh-huh. might have a different impression i mean he's really big and his hand is like he's one of these guys that it's like part of the reason yeah and i know this from actually playing with him a little bit it's like his hands are gigantic mm-hmm. and he plays these guitars that have super heavy strings mm-hmm. on them like the, the strings like a jazz guitarist would use to get that kind of fat sound Oh. Uh and so when he's doing all this like extreme vibrato that you hear him play in his style mm-hmm. that's like i mean i've played his guitars and like i could never get that vibrato because you know my hands are like decent size but they're not. <laughs> oh. i mean hendrix apparently had like giant hands which i think were sort of out of proportion with his body right and and i, I wouldn't necessarily say that about tom because he's a much bigger guy than hendrix was
3: uh-huh. but
2: um that's actually part of part of his sound is the fact that he's using really heavy strings on a guitar and he's 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 got these big big hands that can can really uh, work them so you know he's he's getting this like very like fat tone without really using distortion and it's kind of like a clean sound but it's thick
3: mm-hmm. at the same
2: time and that's that's actually the the key to it is 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 actually using these like heavy strings and just being like A big guy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he definitely has a very distinctive sound. Whenever he plays on anybody else's records, I always immediately, I'm like, all right, there's Tom. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and
0: he he writes such beautiful melodies. I mean, his songs are like really exquisite.
2: Yeah, you know what's funny is one time I was with him and somehow the, the song Moon River Came up, or maybe mm. I kind of used it as, as an example of something that was kind of corny, mm-hmm. and he and he kind of said, "Oh, but that's a beautiful melody." Uh-huh. So mm. it's something that he, <laughs> he 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 you know again people don't necessarily think of him that way, but that, it's something that he definitely pays attention to, and I think he's that's like uh, something that's probably important to him. Yeah, as a musical attribute, and I, I and I
0: love the tension between him and Richard Lloyd because they're such separate guitar players. Um, so having that combined in one group or one unit is it's really uh, it made a big impression on me.
2: Yeah, and there there are two very different personality types too. That was probably, mm. that was another part of it. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that, that you know the whole the whole thing of friction it's like it's obviously the song isn't necessarily about that but it it's, it must have been something that was at least subconsciously was was on his mind. I'm yeah. dying
0: for a Tom Verlaine memoir. Yeah,
2: I'm sure he's waiting for the highest bidder.
1: <laughs> oh but well, we'd yeah. love to have him on the show. <laughs>
3: yeah. Of course. Well, he's yo. Put know, in your bed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now I did think it was interesting. You had one interview where you had mentioned in the intro that you weren't a particularly big fan of his work, which was Matthew Barney. And so I was wondering like how did you approach that, you know, initially not having the passion that you clearly have for most of these people that you're interviewing. And did you sort of change your perspective after you started to dig into his work and talk to him?
2: Yeah. You know, I watched a couple of the cremaster films and I went and I saw like a screening of, I think it was drawing restraint nine, which was essentially what the interview was about. Um, And I did some research and, but again, it was like something I had enough in common with him that I knew I could pull it off. I mean, that was, you know, that's an example of something where the the article that came out in Sight and Sound magazine was quite a short article. It was like one page
3: mm-hmm. and mm.
2: I only used three or four quotes from him.
3: Mm.
2: And that's like a four thousand word interview. Uh-huh. So I had done you know, I had sort of done but again it was he was enjoyable to talk to. So, you know, it was mm-hmm. it was fine. I wasn't just like it wasn't just like, well, you know, this is just a short piece, so I'm just gonna ask you a couple questions then. You can get out of here, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. I was like, you know, let's, let's make this something interesting because there is actually a lot to sink your teeth into in his work, whether or not it's, you know, to my particular taste is, right. you know, one thing, but, um, and also it was, uh, it was for Sight and Sound, which is a magazine that I liked, so, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of want to make the most of it.
0: Is there a difference between uh, making and listening to music and writing about music?
2: You mean like writing about the music itself or I mean what we're we're dealing with here is talking about musicians. I mean obviously Mm -hmm. I've written about music too but um, I think think actually the similarity is in finding like the right thing to play with a song or like and then also finding the right description of music, find the right words to describe music or describe, you know, like what you had, like, what you had said before Kimley, about Tom being a uh, guitarist for people who are embarrassed to have guitars, <laughs> like coming up with that encapsulation in a way is a little bit like what I play, you know, like something I played when I played with him because I played with him a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be finding the right notes to complement what he's doing. Right. You know what I mean? Uh So I think that's a, that's a similarity to it. I mean, inevitably if you're writing about something, you're sort of like, there's, there's a gap that's not there. If you're actually playing Mm -hmm. like for me to play with him is more immediate than me. Like transcribing a conversation we had and then turning that into an article or Mm. writing about, what his music is or what it means to me, you know, uh-huh, I can, uh-huh. you know, I've been fortunate enough that I was able to go and play little Johnny Jewel with him and Billy Ficka oh. at a show, you know, oh. Oh, wow. at the Bowery Ballroom, which was like a benefit concert after nine 11 20 years ago. So, you know, I could write about you know, little Johnny Jewel and what a, a great record it is or what a great song it is but uh-huh. going and playing that with those two guys is like sort of like eliminates the middleman but i don't mind being the middleman once in a while too
0: was, it, <laughs> <laughs> was that show billed as a television show or was it billed like
2: no it was tom it was tom it was it was the three of us and then this guy patrick deravaz uh-huh. who's an engineer but also a bass player and, and a friend of tom's and, and, uh. and patrick was the the fourth person in that, in that group.
0: And in your books, there's certain topics come up, like the, the difference between live music and recorded music. And do you, as a, as a composer, do you have a preference?
2: Well, I like both, and I think you have to like both. And mm-hmm. But at the same time, there are frustrations with both. Um, you know, live music, I mean, I tend to like watching people play music more than mm-hmm. listening to a record of it. Mm-hmm. but you know there's a lot of uh occupational hazards with that like if the venue isn't good or the person mixing the sound isn't good uh it can be a problem and right you know also like especially with song you know like i did this whole i did this other book that was like uh like a book-length interview with will oldham right it was mm-hmm. called will oldham on bonnie principality billy which was Sort of supposed to be part of the favor and Faber series of directors on directors, like right. you know, uh-huh. Herzog on Herzog, Scorsese on Scorsese, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Uh, and the idea was that the publisher came up with was to do one with Will kind of in that series. And so we did this book and, um, you know, I spent a week at his house interviewing him and we did some follow-up interviews and he was already a friend of mine, um, which made it nice. But... I, The next time I went to see him after doing that book, he was he played a few of the songs that we had talked about, and I realized like, man, I hear him play the stuff live, and like the lyrics, which we spent some time discussing, it's just like it just flies by you, and you're just kind of you're distracted by you know what they're actually doing on stage, and you're kind of watching them, so it's not a place where you can really kind of analyze music so well, or if you're really trying to like uh mm-hmm. absorb something you know, like live is maybe not the place to do it because there's so it's still the whole thing about being in a group of people is like gives it this whole other dimension which right. is great but it's maybe not like for listening it's maybe not the place to do that as much as it is at home with a record on headphones or mm-hmm. however it is you know you want to do it
0: i think glenn bronca prefer live right than recording yeah I mean he
2: he, it was hard for him to get a good recording I think of what he was doing a lot of it just had to be like this high volume thing in the room and the way that Mm -hmm. the sound kind of would kind of like interact with the even the air molecules in the room Mm
3: -hmm. was
2: part of it and it's just something that that is hard to capture on a microphone and then even if you do capture it then especially in his day of like vinyl albums then like kind of like then squashing that down onto like a two track tape and then squashing that down again onto like a, vi- a vinyl album is just like, just a lot of it just gets lost. I mean, there's a few recordings uh-huh. I've heard that I think sound a bit like it sounded like live when I went to see him live, but mm-hmm. again, you, it's like, you have to, you kind of have to be in the room with it. But a lot of the, you know, Lamont Young is kind of the same way. It's like, yeah. it just doesn't translate. You know, you can't buy a record of the dream house. It's you really, have, you know, the one, Shandar record where it's like it's like three sine tone kind of dream house Mm -hmm. it's like an approximation of it that you know is like reasonable but you know the you know what he has now which i think is like something like 22 or 23 different pitches and then all the kind of attendant harmonics and the way everything kind of swirls around and recombines in the space it's like you're never going to get that on a stair even a cd like you're never gonna get that in a, a stereo recording.
0: So Lamont Young does doesn't deal with the idea of recording his music in that sense for at least for uh, for
2: for commercial distribution. Well, I mean he's 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 released very few records. I mean the ones he's released mm-hmm. I think were things that he thought would translate. Yeah, you know, like the well tuned piano, which is uh-uh. at least that's just solo piano. Yeah, it's interesting. And then there's people like
0: Glenn Gould who does not like live performances and prefers the studio.
2: Right. He seemed to feel that that was more egalitarian because Um, then everybody would quote unquote have the best seat in the house and you could sort of like refine the performance so it's like he didn't have... You didn't have him humming along, <laughs> 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 or uh, you know, making a mistake, or, or whatever.
1: Uh-huh. Well, I still hear the humming, but <laughs> yeah, no, I think you couldn't—you couldn't really
2: get that out. No, no. I think he he the and way Keith Jarrett. Over the keyboard, <laughs> it's like between him, Keith Jarrett, and Elvin
1: Jones, it's—it's uh, you know, <laughs> you know, it's part of their charm. I sort of yeah. love the humming on it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Now, an interesting debate that I see spring up frequently is and you kind of address it a little bit is whether or not musicians should only musicians should write about music. And I kind of feel like it's both are good. I think both musicians and non-musicians should write about music. But you really, as a peer, I see that you have a really good uh, pull on people and getting out certain conversations that I don't think a non-musician could get from an interviewee. What are your thoughts on this? do you think that it should only be musicians or?
2: Yeah. I mean, by and large, the the most, uh, you know, satisfying conversations I've had about music have been with other musicians, Mm -hmm. like even just as a musician uh, and not with someone who's interviewed me about um, music. I mean, there's exceptions to that, but um, so that's, that's kind of like where I'm, I'm coming from with this. It's like in general, like when I talk. The, like the people who kind of like understand what's going on are are other people are other musicians because they've sort of been there. Like they understand what it's entailed in playing a concert or making a record, mm-hmm. or going right. on tour, and, and all the things you have to do as a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. I mean, the fact of the matter is, lots of musicians don't want to waste time <laughs> writing about music or interviewing other musicians because they want to be playing music. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, <laughs> I'm in a way, I'm sort of like. A, you know i'm kind of a a funny excuse for a professional musician because Mm -hmm. i don't tour eight months out of the year i I kind of tour sort of rarely Mm -hmm. um you know i don't write music for other people to play for the most part it's like Mm -hmm. most of what i do is is for solo guitar played by me Mm -hmm. i mean if i (laughs) play with other musicians a lot of times it's free improvisation that way everybody's sort of like uh working together and contributing pretty equally to what the end result Mm-hmm. is
3: mm-hmm.
2: um i mean i've been in rock bands and even there i think it was a case where everyone was sort of it was sort of acknowledged that everyone was expected to come up with their own part no matter whose song mm-hmm. it was it, you know i wasn't like you know no Lee ronaldo wasn't telling me what to play on his songs you know and when i was playing in his band the the dust you know which made it a couple of records mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. it's almost 10 years ago mm-hmm. amazingly enough but uh so, uh, and I don't like playing music from a score. You know, mm-hmm. I don't like playing other people's compositions. So a lot of the things that, you know, you're supposed to do as a professional musician, I, I kind of like reject.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that
2: kind of leaves me in the position of having to, you know, come up with other um, streams of revenue.
1: Side hustles. <laughs> so, yeah.
2: So, I mean, writing has certainly been one. You know, I also uh, book the venue Tonic. Mm -hmm. in new york for a long time Mm -hmm. uh like six or seven years i guess
1: when you're doing these interviews do you approach it as thinking well i'm writing this for existing fans or do you think about turning new people on like how does that change the focus of your questions
2: i mean it sort of depends where i'm writing it for you know with a lot of the stuff in the wire like i think i definitely thought about turning people on to someone like ken jacobs or richard foreman i mean Mm
3: -hmm. the
2: you know, Richard is a playwright and Ken is a filmmaker and people reading The Wire would probably not be so familiar with who they are, I'm guessing. And you know, the point there was sort of like these guys are actually, you know, especially with John Zorn was someone that both of them had in common mm-hmm. and people who re- read The Wire, you know, are at least aware of John Zorn.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's
2: like if you're a fan of John Zorn, you might be interested in. Uh, in what these guys are doing because not only have they collaborated with him, but I think especially in Richard's case, the, his whole uh, approach to playwriting is is an influence on John's approach to composing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that I mean, that's a good example, I think, of something where I was really hoping that it would be someone who's unfamiliar with them to begin with mm-hmm. and um, and then might become interested in it. And you know, like Zorn had actually released a DVD of Ken Jacobs, which is sort of what prompted writing that article. And, and Zorn had collaborated on one of Richard's plays, and then released the soundtrack on Zodic. And again, that was again how I was able to kind of get them into the wire. I, I think in those in those cases, I approached the wire and said, you know, could I could I write about these guys? He's got this is coming out on Zodic. This is coming out on Zodic.
3: Your
0: book works in that way too because like you know some of the names I don't know of before I read your book so it was an incredible introduction to their work and make me re- be really curious to uh, go on my own journey to uh, to seek out their either their recordings or their artwork or their writings
2: yeah I mean that's sort of what I was hoping for was that someone would pick it up for the Lou Reed interview and the suicide interview and
3: mm-hmm.
2: more of the rock things and then or maybe for Glenn Bronca or Reese mm-hmm. Chatham and then discover, some of the other people in there as a result of that. Or it'd be someone that they had maybe vaguely heard mm-hmm. about through one of those, like Tony Conrad, mm-hmm. but didn't know that much about and then would read the interview and be like, oh, actually.
1: Right. Well is, that's the is, best way. This is
2: interesting too, yeah. I
0: got totally I got totally suckered in by you.
1: <laughs> I know, yeah. I knew <laughs> about yeah. half the people and then the other half I mm-hmm. didn't. And it's yeah. it's great sent me down this great rabbit hole.
2: I mean as I was as I was I was you know, compiling it, I realized it was sort of like I had. It was almost like a dinner party where you kind of seat these people next to each other, hoping mm-hmm. they'll kind of like, you know, hit it off. Where it's like you all know me, but you don't necessarily know each other. So yes. I'm like mm-hmm. doing this dinner party so everyone can kind of, you know, uh, get to know each other better.
0: That is so true. Because they definitely, you know, interview each person sort of bounce off with the other. You know, it is like a dinner party, like a really yeah. good dinner party. It could be bad, but the company is great
1: it's definitely the best way to learn about things it's like you find a trusted source and then you just uh follow them wherever they're going to lead you which is great about this book um and we should mention it's a beautiful book they did a really nice job printing it um it's kind of a little brick of a book but it Mm -hmm. feels great in the hand and it's beautifully designed
0: yeah Yeah. blonde editions Yes. Yeah, they did a beautiful work. And are there any? Uh, speaking of like um, music writers, are are there any music writers that you enjoy uh, uh, like reading their essays? Anybody like Paul Bowles or Glenn Gould or uh, John Cage or Morton Feldman? Those those type of.
2: Oh, when they've written it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Morton Feldman for sure. John Cage to mm-hmm. some extent. Yeah. Um, Paul Bowles, I haven't read that much of.
0: He did a series of uh, reviews for like a New York paper like in, in the 40s. And there was a book, a compilation of his reviews. It's pretty interesting. And
2: there's people like Lenny Kaye who have kind mm-hmm. of like gone back and forth mm-hmm. um, for sure. I mean, Jean-Luc Godard, you know, is like someone who started off as a film critic and then right. became a filmmaker. And, and I like some of his writing. I think there's also like like artists who've, have also written mm-hmm. about art, like uh, I like Robert Smithson's writing. Mm-hmm. I think there's like a collection of his writing that I have here somewhere. Yeah, and Glenn Gould's writing I, I like quite a bit. I, I think I have a a whole book of his collection of his of his writing. Yeah,
0: he mostly did his own liner notes for his albums.
2: Yeah, but he he wrote he actually reviewed records. I think you know uh-huh. for I think High Fidelity magazine, or and would do some some essays i think as well but but of all the ones you mentioned i think morton feldman was the the one whose writing i enjoyed Hmm. the most
0: we almost did a morton feldman episode but we didn't do it for some reason
1: well yeah it's because we can't get him on the podcast (laughs) for obvious reasons (laughs) but we might still do it in the future
0: he's not here anymore
3: (laughs) <laughs> no
1: now, i did like that you had a brief intro for each interview yeah. kind of you know saying what your relationship uh to the person was either professionally or personally um why did you feel it was important to put these little intros rather than just kind of have a i felt like theater. you had to
2: give each interview some context mm-hmm. and it would mm-hmm. benefit from having that context that context i was actually dreading doing that Uh, um because you know i thought um you know it would turn into like a kind of a wikipedia mini bio of the person and i really i find doing that kind of thing very tedious uh and then i kind of talked to blank forms about and they were like well you know just kind of have fun with it and and Mm -hmm. just kind of explain how you know the person and um and what the background of um the, the original interview was mm-hmm. and once i did that i didn't have to worry so much about explaining who the was at le- the person is mm-hmm. at least in detail yeah. Yeah. it just made it much more fun and that's when i started also kind of like realizing like oh actually like you know this came about because of this thing that this other person who's in the book you know mm-hmm. did or like you know or whatever it was
1: so right, then, you have a yeah. lot of cross-references in the book. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and
2: some of them I kind of became more aware of as a result of doing these introductions. Hmm. Right. That's kind of like start to pull it all. It, it really helped kind of pull it all together. And I, I didn't even read the interviews in the order they're in in the book mm-hmm. now until we had the galleys for it.
3: Because
2: Blank Forms did the, the editing kind of like not in the order they appear in. So it was mm-hmm. just all kind of like, huh. you know, I guess not random, but, but, but reasonably random. Mm. And, um, so I didn't, I didn't see it in that order until uh-huh. when I kind of, you know, until I was reading the galleys, and, um, it was really, I, he, you know, the other thing that it reminded me of was actually the, this, you know, the swimmer, which was, it was a short story by John Cheever
3: mm-hmm.
2: originally. And then it was, but I know, much better the film
3: mm-hmm. of it Me that too.
2: Frank Perry did and Eleanor Perry did the script, which was adapted from the story. But it's you know Burt Lancaster plays this kind of middle aged guy who decides he can swim all the way home through all the pools that are kind of lined mm-hmm. up
3: mm-hmm. in his <laughs>
2: county, I and mean, so he's like uh, kind of swimming his in Connecticut somewhere, and so he's kind of like swimming his way from he's pool hopping essentially. And mm-hmm. kind of every pool, every, you know, person's home that he goes to, like he has a different kind of association or a different history with them. Right. Uh, and it sort of turns dark as it, as it goes on. Yeah. And uh, I realized like, I'm like the swimmer <laughs>
3: <laughs> because wow. music,
2: the music is the connective tissue, not right. the swimming pools, but uh-huh. every person I encounter, it's kind of leads you into all these different areas with the, the starting point being music, but then it just, you know, kind of goes from there. And it's, sometimes it's someone I have a kind of a long history with, and sometimes it's someone I've, I'm meeting for the first time and sometimes it's this or that, but it definitely reminded me of that. It was really funny. Really kind of struck well,
1: let's me. hope it has a better ending. <laughs>
2: yeah, there, There's no dark
3: ending.
1: <laughs> good. Good.
3: The
0: swimmer is really amazing. I mean, it's a, it's a great story and it's a great film. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, comparing The Swimmer to the book. I, I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is great. <laughs> so, Common Tones, Selected Interviews with Artists and Musicians from 1995 to 2020, written and put together by Alan Lick. And um, I love this book. I think that it's an it's exceptional book
2: oh thank you so much and very yeah. and
0: you have different individuals but they have something in common their creativity and it's really, i could read it from one interview to the next without any problem so it, it, it flows beautifully oh good including the introductions so thank you alan for being on the show
2: thanks yeah. for having me this has really been fun
0: and what we're we going to do next, can we? Okay, internet?
1: well, some people may recall we would, we had scheduled a book called Why Marianne Faithful Matters by Tanya Pearson. Uh-huh. Well, we had to reschedule her. Some scheduling issues came up, but she is going to be on the show for our next one. Um, so we're looking forward to that. And we've got playlists for all of our episodes on Spotify and Apple Music. And you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all the latest news. And links to everything are on our website at bookmusic.com, B-O-O-K-M-U-S-I-K.com. So thank you, Alan, and thank you, everyone.
0: Thank you, Alan. Thanks again. Thank you, and uh, I'll be seeing the rest of the world soon. Take care. Bye-bye.